0: Well, glad that you are here with us today as we continue our series Through the Life of Christ. And uh, I want to ask you to help us give a big welcome to our Southeast Campus, our microsites, and those who are watching online right now. Let's just welcome them. Glad that you are here and part of this. Well, I don't know if you've ever had a VIP experience before. I'm sure you have. Um, We had some friends of ours who took Darla and I to a Sacramento Kings NBA basketball game in December. And these weren't just normal tickets to your normal seats. These were courtside seats that belonged to Shaquille O'Neal. And whenever you're going to a basketball game and you're sitting in seats that belong to Shaquille O'Neal on the courtside, people treat you very nice. (laughs) Before the game, We were able to go to this VIP buffet that people were there, and so since it was this free buffet, I decided to sample everything that was there. I thought I might not make it back, and so I'm sampling everything that there is, trying to eat all of this food. And while we were there, someone from the front office came to greet us. Spent a little bit of time with us, but I didn't know who it was. And so when he left, asked my friend, I said, who was that? He goes, well, that was the president of the Sacramento Kings. I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. Well, we get out to the game, and we sit in these seats that are just amazing. And when you sit at courtside seats, you have to pay attention. Because if you're not paying attention, a ball is going to hit you on live TV. You don't want that to happen. You don't want to trip a player, you know, and embarrass yourself. So, so you just got to pay attention. And when you sit in seats like that, You only get there because you are someone or you know someone. And we were not in these seats because of anything about us, about what we'd done or who we were. We were treated as these VIPs because of a relationship, because of somebody else. Well, I think there is a desire for all of us to be great, to kind of be this VIP. We want to be recognized and affirmed. We've been conditioned to believe that our value is based on our position or our performance or our reputation, but the values in the kingdom of God are upside down. The things that we place value on and the things that we place importance in are completely different in God's kingdom. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 9, because we are in this series that we are walking through the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And here's the big idea of this series, is that the closer that you get to Jesus, the more your life will change. We just believe that the closer that you get to him, the more you will change. Well, Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was probably an eyewitness of Jesus. Most scholars think that the upper room that Jesus spent time in, that he spent the last supper in and other time with his disciples was owned by Mark's mother. So he was probably an eyewitness of Jesus, but his information from his gospel comes from the apostle Peter. So Peter is his main source. You don't see anything happening in the book of Mark where Peter is not there. And we see Mark later on in the New Testament as well. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's called John Mark throughout the rest of the New Testament. And last week, we made a transition in our series in Mark. While the first half of Mark is about who Jesus is, his identity, the second half is about his purpose, why he came. The first half, we see Jesus' authority. He has authority over everything. His authority to forgive sins, his authority over religion, his authority over nature and demons and disease and death. We see Jesus walk on water. We see him heal people. But from this point on, it's all about what Jesus has come to do, that Jesus' ultimate purpose is to give his life on the cross. So let me give you the setting of what's happening here in Mark chapter 9. Jesus is ultimately heading towards Jerusalem where he knows that he will lose his life. And he's trying to tell his disciples what will happen, but they don't get it. And they are in the back and they're arguing with each other. So we're going to pick this up in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 30. It says, When they left that place and passed through Galilee... Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. So he must have not wanted them to be disturbed because of what he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the second time that Jesus predicts his death, that he's telling them What's about to happen to him when they go to Jerusalem? That he's going to be betrayed and killed, and he will rise three days later. But they don't get it, and they are afraid to ask. Now, now, you've been here before. You know, where someone is explaining something to you, and you don't understand, and so you're too embarrassed to ask, and so you just nod your head? I mean, you've been there before, right? Some of you are nodding your head right now because you don't know what I'm talking about. Verse 33 It says, they came to Capernaum where he was in the house. Now, Jesus wasn't just in the house. Jesus was in a house. And he was in the apostle Peter's house. This is Peter lived in Capernaum. This is his hometown. And he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, Jesus had just told them that he's going to die. He just told them that he's going to be handed over and he's going to be tried and killed. And they're arguing over who is the greatest. I'm trying to imagine what this maybe was like. Maybe it went something like this. You know, man, Peter, I know you think you're a pretty good fisherman, but you say the dumbest things. I mean, you always put your foot into your mouth. I mean, Jesus said to you just the other day, get behind me, Satan. So while you might be a decent fisherman, I'm a greater disciple than you. You know, Matthew, I know you are a great tax collector, but in case you didn't know, tax collectors don't have a great reputation around here. And so, while you might be a good tax collector, I'm a greater disciple. I'm better than you. See, this would be like you finding out you had a month to live and your kids are arguing about who gets the car. They're having this argument about who is the greatest when Jesus is trying to tell them he's about to die. Well, Jesus is going to redefine greatness for them and for us. Verse 35, he goes on and he says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and be the servant of all. Jesus introduces a new theology that he will reiterate again and again. It's called the theology of humility. And it's captured in phrases like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That the greatest among you must be the servant of all. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. That if you want to be the greatest, then you be the greatest servant. Now I think This probably hit the disciples kind of like it hits us because when we hear that, when we hear this from the Bible, here's what we begin to think. We begin to think, well, Shane, that probably works really well in church, but it doesn't work like that in the real world because in the real world, you have to watch your back. You have to protect your position. And so for a lot of us, we, we hear these words that if you want to be first, you have to be last, you to be the servant of all. And we want to push against that because it goes against our nature. But listen, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we are going to be the people that Jesus called us to be, and not just in church, and not just when you want something from your husband or your wife, if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, then we have to begin to live and to lead like Jesus lived and led. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't lead. And Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't have a position of authority. But he's going to give us a picture of how to lead. He's going to give us a picture of what greatness really looks like. And so to kind of illustrate this for a second, let me just just blow this balloon up. I know some of you are worried that it might pop and get you get some on you. Here's what Jesus says. He, here's what happens next. Verse 36, it says, He took a little child whom he placed among them. And so I'm trying to picture this, that they're in this house and they're sitting around, and maybe this is Peter's child. I don't know. Maybe he brings them into the circle. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me? I think when Jesus said this, I think it hit them like this. Really, Jesus? I mean, that's what you have for us? I mean, that's your answer? See, I think they're leaning in, waiting for their promotion. They're leaning in, waiting for him to stroke somebody's ego. They're waiting for him to announce the example of greatness. Peter, come on down. You want to know what greatness looks like, Peter? You come on here because we want to show everybody what greatness looks like. But Jesus is redefining greatness. He's telling us what greatness really looks like. Look at the way that Matthew tells this story right here. Here's the way that Matthew puts this. He says, truly I tell you. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus redefines greatness for us. See, there's something about the dependency of a child. A child who is completely dependent on others. See, children are dependent to be fully clothed, to have a roof over their heads, to have food in their stomach. My kids are all grown up, and so they're boring. We can't wait for grandkids. But when they were little, we didn't want them to worry about things that they didn't need to worry about. I just wanted them to be kids. I never wanted my kids to come in and go, Dad, I'm really worried if you're going to be able to pay the mortgage this month. I don't even want that to cross their mind. I just want them to be children. See, I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. To have this childlike trust and dependency on God that only comes through humility. That you begin to, to approach God in that way and say, God, it's all about you. That we have this humility as a child to come alongside and say, God, I'm completely dependent and trusting you. I love the way Tim Keller puts this. He says the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. With God, we have that kind of access. See, that's the picture of what the kingdom is like. is that you come to your father. You come to your heavenly father in that way. Well, fast forward a few weeks or a few months, and in chapter 10, verse 13, there's another incident that happens with kids. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, the disciples kind of look like big jerks here because they're rebuking these kids, but this was the typical attitude towards kids at the time of Jesus. In the first century, children were not admired or cherished. They were not thought of in a positive way because it was all about production, and children did not produce anything. They didn't contribute anything to society, so they were secondary. This was just the normal attitude. Verse 14, it says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was angry. Jesus was angry at this. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. See, this is so countercultural. This goes completely against everything that we've always thought. But Jesus encourages us to become like children, He encourages us to become like children. He's not encouraging us to become childish. He's talking about us becoming childlike, to have this trust like a child, to have this dependence on God like a child. And Jesus is redefining kingdom values to us. He's redefining what God values. See, childlike faith begins with our approach to faith. See, we ought to be growing up in our faith. All of us need to be doing that. One of our values here at The Crossing is that transformation is an expectation for every believer. That it is an expectation that you'll be transformed, that you'll be growing in your faith. But sometimes, grown-up faith takes on this direction where it's more about checking off the boxes than growing closer to Jesus. Some of you, you know the Bible inside and out, and I think that's great. I want all of you to know God's Word. But some of you know God's Word inside and out, but it does not change your life. We begin to equate Bible knowledge with spiritual growth, and these two things are not the same thing. Look at the way that James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. See, I think grown-up faith... Sometimes it's all about just checking off the boxes so we feel good about ourselves. Grown-up faith can also be self-centered because what happens all the time is it'll be, God, I need you to fill in the blank, whatever that is for you, whatever it is that you keep going to God, say, God, I need you to do this. And when he doesn't do it, we get mad. It's like, where were you? You expect me to follow you? See, this is a faith that is me-focused, It's based on our current circumstances. If my bank account is full, if I'm feeling healthy, then our faith is strong. But Jesus introduces an upside-down kingdom. Jesus takes what doesn't even make sense to us, and he turns it upside down. He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So I was thinking this week about how a child approaches life. I mean, watching children, I mean, there's just something fun about watching children. So I begin to write just a few things about how a child approaches life. And here, here's my list. Number one, they have a wonder in life. Do you ever take kids to Disneyland? I mean, it is so much fun taking a child to Disneyland. Not so fun taking an adult to Disneyland. Because when adults go to Disneyland, they complain about the price And then they complain about the price. And then they say things, you know, the lines are too long and things don't look as real as as they need to look. But a child, they just just have this sense of wonder. Children, they are blind to color, to social class and dress. Children are dependent on their parents. Their self-worth comes from their parents. They are expressive with emotions, I mean, there is joy that will come on them or sadness they're expressive. They get excited about Christmas. When was the last time you got excited about Christmas? They have all the time in the world to play, especially with people. They don't get stressed out. They live in the moment. They aren't afraid to make new friends. They hate to sleep, but they have no trouble sleeping. They seek to imitate their parents. They're not afraid to help. They're they're not afraid to recognize and to admit their own weaknesses. They never get tired of asking questions. Now, we get tired of that, but they can just ask question after question after question. They're not afraid to dance. They may tattle, but they don't gossip. They tell you honestly what they like and dislike and why. They live for hugs and kisses and candy. And the simplest thing can become a treasure. A stick can become a treasure in the hands of a child. What if that described our faith again? What if we approach God like that? Not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. That you have this awe and this wonder In this relationship with God, when was the last time that you approached God with awe and wonder? The first time that you became a follower of Jesus. You remember how you approached God back then? How excited you were about your faith, that you were completely dependent on God? See, Jesus redefines greatness. He gives us a new picture. Listen to this again. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of God. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what greatness looks like. That's what greatness looks like. So I just want to kind of help us take the first step in applying this to our life. And I just want us to ask a question. It's just this. It's how can I serve you? See, this question right here, when we begin to ask this question, this is... New kingdom living. This is a brand new way of doing things, and this will completely change your family dynamic. How can I serve you? This will completely change your work dynamic. When you begin to say this, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must take the last place and be the servant of everyone else. How can I serve you? So what does this look like? If you're a parent, depending on what stage of parenting you're in, things can turn negative with your kids really quickly. What if in the next week, instead of getting on them for something that they should have done, you just say, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? And see what happens. See what doors may begin to open between you and your children. If you're in middle school or high school, you just need to wait a couple weeks. Wait till your parents forget about this message. And then you come up to them and you say, how can I serve you? And it will so blow them away, they won't know what to say, and they'll say nothing to you. So you'll get credit for saying it, but you won't have to do anything. It's going to be perfect. (laughs) Ladies, when you say this to your husbands or to your boyfriends, here's what it says. It says, I'm aware that you carry a burden. I'm aware of the responsibility and the weight that you carry and I want to leverage my time for you, how can I serve you? Guys, I know this question scares you to death. It scares us to death because you fear what they might say. It's like, oh, I don't want to say it because I might have to do something. But the truth is, some of your wives are afraid to ask for help because of what you usually say. So when you ask this, it opens up a door to loving your wife. See, you may be in a job that feels competitive and you're always looking behind your back. Here's what power does. Here's how subtle power is in us. Because when we have certain positions, we start off and we go, I get to do this. And then the next step is, I want to do this. And then the next step is, I deserve to do this. Until finally we say, I demand to do this. But this question, how can I serve you? will completely change the dynamic of your office. If you're a boss and you begin to ask this of the people who work for you, it will change everything. This right here, this question right here, could open up the door for you to share your faith. My father-in-law worked for Cessna Aircraft for 35 years. Um, He was the test pilot for the very first Citation jet. This is a picture of the inaugural flight of the Citation jet. He's there on the far left. He was the test pilot who flew that. Well, he worked himself all the way up to become the senior vice president of Sefton Aircraft. And he and his team designed all the modern fleet of jets. He designed the fastest business jet in the world. And when he retired, they had a retirement celebration for him and a hangar that could hold 2,000 people. And dignitaries flew from all over the world to be there. But the reason that they put it in the hangar was not for them. It's because all of the factory workers wanted to be there. And then we saw the same thing again at his funeral. The president of Rolls-Royce was right next to the factory worker. And all of these guys who had worked in the factory, they came up and they said, let me just tell you what your father-in-law was like. Let me tell you what it was like working for him. He would come and he would walk on the factory floor. They said no other executive in the company would ever do that, but he did that on a regular basis. Said that he served barbecue lunches and he actually served them to the workers. Said he knew my name and he helped my family. He treated me like I was important. Jesus says that's what greatness looks like. Not to use people to get what you want out of them, but to serve people the way that Jesus served. See, childlike faith, childlike humility, it is not easy, but it's not complicated either. So here's this question for us. Are you chasing this childlike faith, this childlike humility? When was the last time that you approached God with awe and with wonder? When was the last time I was reading this book called Dangerous Wonder by Mike Iaconelli this week. Look what he writes. He says, we are in a war between dullness and astonishment. The most critical issue facing Christians today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. The good news is no longer good news. It's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing. It's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wild-eyed radicals anymore. He changes them into nice people. If Christianity is simply about being nice, I'm not interested. So what would it look like for you to redefine your faith? For you to begin tomorrow and begin to leverage whatever Authority, whatever power you have to serve other people. And just to ask this question, how can I serve you? See, this is the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do. There is something precious about children. Can I just say to some of you, would you just lighten up? Would you just find joy again? Would you just find joy in the journey of knowing Jesus? Yesterday, we had a baptism bash our children's ministry, had this baptism bash where We had 14 people who were baptized yesterday. 14 people. <laughs> and here's what's happening is, is kids in our own church, they're influencing their parents. Let me tell you about the, the Staten family. Came to church a little while ago. Surrender their life to Jesus. And yesterday, I think we have a picture of this. The whole family was baptized. The whole family came together. They are baptized. See, it's children influencing their parents. And parents who are showing what it means to be a follower of Jesus all together. See, Jesus said this later on in chapter 10. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. So maybe for us, it's going, let's serve like children do. Let's bring that attitude back in. Let's lighten up. Let's enjoy life. Let's bring this joy back and and begin to have this sense of awe and wonder about Jesus again. Let's pray. Here's what I want you to pray. I just want you to pray, God, give me the faith of a child again. God, that's our prayer. God, help us to have the faith of a child to approach you like a child does, with awe and wonder. God, there is something about seeing children and the way they serve Jesus. There's something about seeing the excitement of children, the humility that they have. God, make that us. Help us to have that kind of faith again. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.